Well, good morning, Great Commission. My name is Sarah. You guys stand to your feet. I'm going to read us our call to worship today. Job 19.25 says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, He will stand near us. Would you guys join us as we worship today?
tonight. It's the new year, and 2024 is off to a great start. I'm Trevor Davis. I'm GCC's pastor. Thank you for being with us on this first Sunday of 2024. The first thing I want to do is announce to our church our new monthly schedule and what you can expect. And so it's a little different. The first Sunday of the month this year is what we call Global Offering Sunday. I'm going to explain more about that in just a moment. So every first Sunday of the month, Global Offering Sunday. Sundays numbers two and three are basically our regular liturgy, the, the normal order of service that you've been accustomed to when you come here, and, and those two Sundays will include the Lord's Supper. And then the fourth Sunday of the month is the newest wrinkle. It's going to be Prophetic Ministry Sunday. It's going to be brand new, and uh, it's going to be uh, really uh, kind of a curveball, some, some kind of ministry maybe you've never seen or experienced. It brings the power of God to sit right in the seat next to you, and so we're going to be uh, looking forward to January 28th, our first Prophetic Ministry Sunday. We'll also have the Lord's Supper then. So uh, three of the four Sundays in the month, we will... We will uh, uh, observe the Lord's table. The only one that won't be a, a Lord's Supper Sunday is the first, and we're going to instead include a different kind of ceremony, and that's for Global Offering Sunday. I want to explain it to you. We, we began doing this back in October, I believe, and so it's just catching on. It was so powerful in the first service, and uh, there's just some, some inspiration and some power from the Holy Spirit when our church gets together and walks forward and says, God, would you take what I'm giving to you this month, my time, my talent, even my treasure, and consecrate it before you? And so this is, in just a moment, there's four stations in the room, one, two, three, and four. And our church, the members of our church are going to rise to our feet, and we're going we're gonna to bring our a represent, representation of, of the, the offerings that we'll give this month to the Lord um, and receive prayer at that time. So we, we consecrate all that we're giving to the Lord for the month of January. It's an opportunity for our members to encourage each other as we financially support our church together. You're going to see it. There's some good peer pressure there. Um, it also provides a, a tangible offering experience for the year 2024 because people don't carry around cash and checks hardly anymore. Most people do their, their transactions digitally in our world today on your phone, on your computer, and it's all invisible. It's not tangible. And so we said we wanted to give an opportunity for the believers in our church to, uh, to Come before the Lord with something tangible, saying, this represents all of the invisible ways I'm going to give to the Lord this month, and I want it to be prayed for and to be blessed. Let me tell you something else, another reason why we do Global Offering Sunday. Listen to me very carefully. This is important. It reinforces to our children that they belong to a family who demonstrates their faith by generosity. You know, your children need to see that you give. They don't just need to, to suspect that you do it. Amen? And so this is a great teaching moment here. So, so bring your children up, up there to be prayed for with your offering. It's, it's fantastic. We call it Global Offering Sunday because even though we have a one-fund approach to giving in our church, we give more to missions now than we ever have. And so as the sun rose on planet Earth today, our missions dollars were going across the world 
and they're supporting church planters and pastors and the gospel and new churches in Kenya, in Uganda, in Mexico, and all the places that Harvest International Ministries are in and that we support. And so this is the time of the month where we say, God, we know you're going to take what we give, and we're asking you to, to maximize every nickel around every inhabitable continent on planet Earth, make it make disciples for the nations. And so that's why it's global. Now, I need something I forgot. It's on the front row. It is an object lesson. In your seats, an envelope. In the first service, my wife and I brought an empty envelope to, to the station that we chose because we're, we, we put the, the offering in it for the second service. Because most people give digitally, the idea of global offering, is, uh, global offering Sunday is this. This envelope represents our offerings to the Lord for this month that we're, having God, that we're having church leaders pray for. So if you give digitally or if this was not the day you normally give, bring an empty envelope to one of these, uh, to one of these stations and say, Lord, all that I give to you this, this month, even if it's not today, I want your hand on it, I want your blessing on it. Or if you are giving today, put it in that envelope. And when you come forward, there's going to be an elder at these stations. And one of those elders is going to say a short 10-second prayer over you and your family and your giving to the Lord for this month. And so you'll just place your envelope or your giving in these receptacles. Now, now here's, here's how it's different than the Lord's Supper. When the Lord's Supper is over, it's a real happy kind of celebration time. That's the way we want it to be. And so there's like chatter. At the end, when you, when you make your offering and get prayed for, I'm asking our church to return to your seat and pray and meditate, and let's just be reverent and quiet before the Lord until the ceremony ends and we stand to sing again. Let's make that different. Let's make it a prayerful time. And so in just a second, I'm going to have a stand uh, after I pray. And as I'm praying, I'm going to ask you elders to come and take your stations. Now look, none of these stations are assigned. You get to pick whichever line you want to go in. What, what my wife and I do is we wait till they all fill up and then we go to the shortest one. And so, or you might look and go, I think that elder might pray a better prayer over me this month. You can do that. <laughs> Just don't tell him that because we don't want his head to get big. Um, this is a time to show love and solidarity as a church, the holy moment. And we're, as we start 2024, we're going to do this the first Sunday of every month. This is a huge moment in our church's ministry. And so let's treat it that way. Let's bow for prayer as I pray elders come. We'll get ready. Father, what a, what a privilege it is to be a part of a church that's this generous. And God, I pray that for our first global ministry offering uh, this month, God, I pray, that, I pray that the members of our church feel the power of God when they're prayed for. I pray that they know that you look on our generosity and see it. And I pray, God, that just like you told that Told, just like that couple told me after the first service they're going to do Financial Peace University, they're believing, God, that you're, going to, that you're going to turn their finances around. God, I pray you do it for the members of our church in the second service today. God, bless this time for the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and go to it.
y'all would just go ahead and stand with us. We're going to continue worshiping the Lord.
hear from you today. Jesus. Thank you.
we just lift up your name in this holy place, God. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for allowing us to come at your feet and worship. God, I pray that you just be with Trevor's words, Lord. That it'll touch each heart in here, God. The thirsty, the hungry. Lord, you're so full of promises. We thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you today. In your holy name, amen. You guys can be seated. What a delight it is to announce that 29 Days of Promise is officially open and going. This is our uh, first month of the year campaign that our entire church is doing. You don't have to be a member to participate in 29 Days of Promise. You do need one of these free notebooks. They are in the lobby, and you may take one as you leave. And it is an in-house publication that we've made that has a daily devotion on one of the promises of God for the next 29 days, and that is the name of our series that I'm beginning today for the next five Sundays, 29 Days of Promise. I'm going to take one of the greatest promises that God's made to us in the Bible and teach about that, apply it to our lives, encourage us about all that God has said to us. So you need one of these. If you didn't get one, uh, get one in the um, lobby when you leave and do today's devotional before you go to bed tonight, and then you'll have 28 more to do with us together. It kind of brings our church together. We do this twice a year. We'll do another one in the summertime. And we start the new year today. We start a new series. I want to read a couple of verses about God and how he keeps his word before we get to our main text. Joshua 21:45 says this about God, not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Likewise, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19. I like to read it, even though it's on the screens, I like to read it from my Bible because that just feels like church to me, amen? If you, get to, if you want to read Numbers 23, 19, don't look at Deuteronomy 23, 19. It doesn't say the same thing. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? My brothers and my sisters, I want to declare to you on the truth of the word of God that God's never told a lie and that every promise he's ever made, he's either kept or he will keep for us. Today, as we begin 29 Days of Promise, find Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, probably somewhere in the middle of the Bible that you have, Ezekiel 36, and we'll have a couple of main verses just from there we, that we will outline this promise of God for. If you're new to our church, the, the preaching of the word is central in our services, and just right alongside of that is the Lord's table, the Lord's supper but you're in a congregation that has been fed a steady diet of verse-by-verse expositional preaching through books of the Bible and passages of the Bible uh, for, at, at this point, this is year, two, <laughs> do you guys know that we, uh, this, this will be the year we celebrate our 25th anniversary as a church? How about that? 
That'll be in October later in the year. It's going to be a big party for, for Jesus and for us. But for the greater part of, of two and a half decades, you're sitting in a congregation that has a specific diet, and they have been fed the scriptures. And so those sitting around you are eager to hear what God has to say in his word today, and I hope that's also true of you. But why would we do a series on the promises of God? Well, Corey Tinboom wrote, let God's promises shine on your problems. Anytime you have a congregation of people, uh, we all bring in all the secrets and, and all the difficulties that are going on in our own hearts, and it just becomes this big pile of difficulties, this big uh, small molehill or, or foothill of problems. And that's exactly what I want to do in the next 29 days is to shine the promises of God on all the darkness and, and, and all the dark clouds that have been hanging over us. Uh, our future is bright because Jesus is Lord, yes? And so we need these promises to begin, begin to shine down. One other, one other quote from a Christian from a long time ago about God's promises. This is from Augustine. And he said, God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. Let me tell you what that means. God has said that if you will obey his gospel, that if you'll come to him on his terms, if you'll repent and believe and be baptized, you'll become a child of God. You'll go from being an object of his wrath to one of his dearly beloved children. He will keep that promise that if you will believe and repent, you'll receive his forgiveness and a new relationship with him. But what he hasn't promised you is that you have plenty of time to make a decision like that. He hasn't promised you a tomorrow. The Bible says, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. You don't have any time to wait. God hasn't promised to honor your putting him off or your procrastinations. That's a, a very important quote from Augustine about the promises of God. I think it's very powerful. Now, there's a context around Ezekiel 36 where we're going to get our promise. There was a, there's a background. There were some things happening that you need to know about that will make this promise um, more powerful in your life. The children of Israel in Ezekiel 36 had become so corrupt. They had, they had chosen the way of the world. They were so worldly that as a judgment, God had scattered them outside of the promised land into all these pagan nations. He said, you guys are going to go live among the darkness that you want. And so he did that. But it kind of backfired. Not that God made a mistake, but he was making a point. When God sent the children of Israel into, into dispersion and judgment into the nations of the world, they got even worse. They thought of God less. They cared about the scriptures at basically none at all. They lived as if there were no God. And so... God's name began to be profaned among the nations of the earth where his people were. The foreigners even said in Ezekiel, and I quote, these are the people of Yahweh, and yet they have gone out of his land. Let me tell you what that means. In other words, some God they have, he could not keep them safe or at home. So the Lord's reputation was being tarnished in Ezekiel 36. His ability to provide for and protect his own people was being called into question by pagan unbelievers. And the question went like this. Was Israel's God inadequate at the task of being God? That is the context. That's the spiritual milieu that the children of Israel found themselves in 
And God remedied, remedied it with one of his great and precious promises that by extension comes on us. And here's the promise in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. God says, I'll give you a new heart. And I'll put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. So the promise of God that I'm preaching about today, I call I will give you a new heart. That's the title of the message. I'll give you a new heart. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to ask a few questions about the verses that we read. That'll be the outline. If you're ready, say yes. Hey, if you're ready for a great year, say yes. Yes. Man, going to be the, we just got off the greatest year in the history of our church, and it was kind of below the surface and baptized more people than we ever baptized, received more new members than we ever received, um, received more offerings to send to the nations than, than ever before. It was, a, it was a time of the power of God. The spiritual gifts are just being given to the believers, and we were praying for people. We, we, we've learned how to be an, an interceding church. 2023 was awesome. 2024 is going to be better because God hasn't changed. And so I don't want you to miss it. So I want you to know what God has said to you. So let's understand this. Here's the first question. When I read Ezekiel 36, 26, I want to know, is there, what is the difference between the heart and the spirit? What are they about? What, what's the difference between the heart and the spirit? And, and as I read and studied this, here's what I learned. Lots of verses in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, where God talks about the heart, he also talks about the spirit in the same sentence. It's as if they're handcuffed to each other. So it's not that we need to make a big distinction between them. They go together. It's like the left and the right, the, the front and the back, the up and the down. They, they're just two sides of the same coin. But theologians are going to give it a try, and they're going to try to tell you what the heart is. And they will, they're going to say something like, your heart in the Bible is almost never mentioning the physical organ, you know, with the four chambers and the, and the ventricles and the blood. It's, this is figurative language. This is metaphorical. So the heart in the Bible includes your mind, how you think, your will, the desires that you have, uh, your emotions, what you feel. In fact, if you want to narrow it down, your heart in the Bible is the center of your personality. It's, it's who you are, and people know your personality, they know you. If people know you, they've kind of felt your heart. Your spirit is a little different. Your spirit is that inner person that's in you. Let me tell you about your spirit. When your body dies, your spirit, uh, your, your spirit still goes on. And so your spirit is here for the next world too. Uh, your spirit is, <laughs> the Bible says in Genesis 1, that God breathed into the man, into Adam, and he became a, a, a nefesh kaya, a, a living being, a person with a soul and a spirit. So your spirit is the impulse that drives you. It it drives your desires, it, it motivates your thoughts, it causes you to do what you do. So your heart and your spirit go together. They're, they're, they're closely tied together in the Bible. Now you kind of know a little bit of the difference between the heart and the spirit. That's not what's important to know in Ezekiel 36, though. God wants you to know in Ezekiel 36 the difference between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh. And that's what I want to explain to you now. That's the next question. What, what's the difference between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh? Well, if you're a person with a heart that's stubborn and rebellious and insensitive to the things of God, 
you have a heart of stone. And in this promise, God says, I'm going to replace your heart of stone, the stubborn, rebellious, insensitive part of you, with a different heart, a heart of flesh. And a heart of flesh is soft, impressionable, and responsive to the truth of God. So you're either stubborn, rebellious, or insensitive to God, or you're soft, impressionable, and responsive. You either have a heart of stone or a heart of flesh. Here's what's interesting. If there is an Ezekiel chapter 36, then we know that there must be an Ezekiel chapters 1 through 35, right? And in 1 through 35, we wonder, has God spoken about the, the heart and the spirit before we get to Ezekiel 36? And if you just do a little concordant search in, in your Bible software, you'll find Ezekiel 18. In Ezekiel 18, it's one of the most famous chapters in the Bible about uh, what happens to the sinner who dies. And in Ezekiel 18.31, God says this, and I quote, he says to the children of Israel, go get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Everybody look at me. In Ezekiel 18, God says to the children of Israel, go get you a new heart and a new spirit by yourself. And then that didn't work. And it was a test God gave them. So when we get to Ezekiel 36, he says, you know what, I'll do it. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. But he didn't take away his former command because good theology is found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And here's what we find out. In Ezekiel 18, when God says, go get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit, he's saying, I'm holding you responsible for your own choices and your own actions. Theologians call that man's responsibility. Everybody say man's responsibility. Man's responsibility. All right. So you got, you got railroad tracks like train tracks. On one of the tracks is man's responsibility. You get to Ezekiel 36 and he says, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. That's called God's sovereignty. It's his prerogative. It's his, it's his sovereign grace. And so here's what I've learned when I put the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Man's responsibility on one side and God's sovereign grace on the other. They run on not completely parallel tracks. Because you know if you have a train and if the tracks ever meet, uh, then the, the train stops going. You know, you derails. Um, because the tracks are straight, because the wheels are straight. But when it comes to man's responsibility and God's sovereign grace, they're on slightly parallel tracks. So they run side by side, and eventually they come together. They come together in Philippians chapter 2. Here's the New Testament teaching on this. Man's responsibility, God's sovereign grace, run on slightly parallel tracks. Eventually they intersect. They coexist. And here's what we learn. Man cannot make himself a new heart unless God gives him one. Does that make sense? So we read in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Back-to-back -back verses. Man's responsibility in verse 12. God's sovereignty in verse 13. He writes, Paul, to the Philippian church. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians, Christians in the city of Philippi that only has one church. I'm not with you, the Apostle Paul writes. I was there. I'm gone now. I'm doing other travels. I'm doing other missionary trips. But now, I remind you, 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've prayed to receive Christ. You've been baptized. You've been marked as a believer. You, you've still got some work to do. But what kind of work is it? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If the book of Philippians ended at Philippians 2 verse 12 with a period at the end of that sentence, we'd all be in big trouble. Because if your salvation depends on your work, you're going to blow it. You're going to ruin it. You're going to, with your, your best intentions and your best week, it would be so difficult to live a life without sin and a life serving Jesus without any grace. Eventually, you just fail so much and stumble so much, you throw your hands up and say, it's too difficult, I quit. But Philippians doesn't end in verse 12. It doesn't even end in verse 13, but 13 is handcuffed to 12. And I want to remind you that when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't write it with chapters and verses. We put those in later. This is just a thought. And when Paul thinks about man's responsibility, he can't help but in the next breath talk about God's sovereignty. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do. He works on your want to, your will, and he works on your effort to do for his good pleasure. <laughs> in the Bible, you can't get away from this mystery, this idea that God holds you responsible for your decisions, but in the background, he's making all the main decisions for you and creating an environment for you to obey him. And I want to remind you, if you'll look at verse 12 one more time, it doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. Jesus already did the work for it. Amen? Amen. And so in, back in Ezekiel, God says, go get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. And he, and he says, and if that doesn't work, you know what? I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. It's both of these truths at the same time. Let me give you a couple of examples of men in the Bible who had either a heart of stone or a heart of flesh. Let's start with Pharaoh. Pharaoh in the Exodus is the first man in the Bible who's said to have had a hardened heart. In fact, it says seven times in Exodus that Pharaoh had a hardened heart. Two or three times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that even if Pharaoh wanted to make the right decision, he couldn't. But he didn't want to anyway. And the other four times or so, the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The result of all of it is, is that Pharaoh had a heart of stone. And the Bible defines this heart of stone of Pharaoh as this. God tells Pharaoh to do something through the lips of Moses, and Pharaoh refuses to do it. So a heart of stone is one that refuses the word of God. Exodus 4.21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I put in your hand. But I will harden his heart, and the result will be he will not let the people go. Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let the people go. I will then harden his heart. He will not let the people go. A heart of stone refuses the word of God. What about a heart of flesh, though? What's that like? Well, the, the opposite of King, King Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt at the time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is King Josiah. King Josiah is one of the kings of the nation of Israel, and I love this guy because the Lord blessed King Josiah in a sense that he was not like the kings who came before him. They were all wicked men. They didn't lead the children of Israel to, to, to be faithful to God's covenant at all. Josiah comes along and he's different. His heart 
was soft before the Lord. And so we read in 2 Chronicles 34, 27, God says to King Josiah, because your heart was tender, the result was you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place, against its inhabitants. You humbled yourself before me. You tore your clothes and wept before me. And the result is, I've also heard you. You see, hearts of flesh get the ear of heaven. If you have a heart of stone, you hear God's word and refuse it. If you have a heart of flesh, you are tender before God, you humble yourself before him, cry out to him, and he hears you. I will take away your heart of stone, God says, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. All right, so now that's the difference between the heart of stone and the heart of flesh. You need to know what they are. A couple more questions before we apply the word to our life today. The next question is, well, pastor, if God's promised to give me, along with all the Old Testament saints, a new heart and a new spirit, why do I need a new heart? Well, one of the answers is this, because I'm not full of goodness on the inside of me. And instead, I'm overcome with wickedness in my inner man. My sinful nature has polluted every part of me. And If that's true, where does the Bible say it? Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. Who can say, I've made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? That's a rhetorical question in the Bible, and the answer is, no one but Jesus. My brothers and my sisters, is it news to you that the scriptures teach that you should be suspicious of what's in your own heart? I must not trust my heart. It's a poor leader. It doesn't lead me on the narrow road and it doesn't point me to God. In fact, my heart's worse than I ever thought. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine. The heart is deceitful above, what does it say? All things. Do you understand that the first part of Jeremiah 17, nine says that your heart is a worse liar to you than the devil himself? The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9 says that even though you know you better than anyone knows you, you don't even have the capacity to plumb the depths of your own heart. Who can know it? Well, the very next verse tells you who can know your heart. I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind. Now, you know as well as I do, as defective as my own heart is, I am a skilled actor. I can do an adequate job of hiding the real me from everyone but God. Well, how do you know that? Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord... Who could stand? Why do I need a new heart? Because the one I have is not worth anything. It's wrecked me. It's helped me become an enemy of God, and it was so bad, it 
It required Jesus to die a, cross, a, a, a death for, for sinners on a cross so that I could ever even be reconciled to God. My heart is worthless. Don't believe the greeting cards. Do not follow your heart. Follow Jesus. That's why I need a new heart. Now, why do I need a new spirit? God says, I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Why do I need one of those? Well, I can't think of two better verses that help us understand why we need a new spirit than what I believe are the two most important verses in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 tells you about the attitude Jesus has about what's inside a person. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in a man. You need a new spirit because it's what guides you and it's really who you are. It's, what, it's the part of you that lasts forever and Jesus knows your inner man, your spirit. So much so that he decided in his earthly ministry, he wouldn't commit himself to any man because he knew what was in us. We need a new spirit for that very reason. Now, my wife and I in February of this year, March of this year, will have lived in the home that we built that we raised our sons in for 16 years. And it's still like a new house to me. I still love it. Still, it still means everything to me. It's where my boys grew up. It's, it's kind of the monument that, that all of my uh, manly strength and my career and my, my, my job as a husband and a father, it, it, it's what we built. And it's where my home happened. And it's across the yard from where my parents' house is. My brother's all around me. Just kind of our own little personal Camelot. I still love it. So I don't see what my wife sees about our house. And we were thinking the other day about what would it, what would it be like to sell our house and downsize. Our, our nest is getting emptier. We're thinking about kicking Evan out and be great, right? And so, so, but Angie says, oh, we can't sell our house yet. I was like, why? She goes, we gotta, we gotta renovate it. I said, what? No, no, I wanna sell it and let somebody else rent it. What do you mean? I, no, no to, to get it to the value that we could really benefit from it. We have to buy new things. And she goes, look over here in our bathroom. So I go, look. she says, look at, look at the sinks in our bathroom. Do you see all the scratches? And I was like, I've never seen those before. And, and, and she's like, they've been there for years. It's like, I'm a guy, you're the mom, right? And so, no, we, we've got to renovate first. She's right, and you guys, why do you laugh at me? So, okay. This whole we got to renovate first is an Old Testament idea. You guys remember David's sin with Bathsheba, so grievous. He, he's a warrior. He sees a woman who's not married to. She's bathing. Um, he's excited about that. He, he, he's aroused, so he, he's the king. Nobody can tell him no. He says, send for me. Go get me that babe over there. And so he uses his power of the throne. He brings her to his house. She gets the idea of, man, I'd love to be able to say I was with the king. They commit adultery. The problem is that adultery is wrong. It made God's top 10, yes? It is, it, it is a destroyer of homes and families. The other problem with this particular adultery was her husband happened to be one of David's most loyal, most fierce fighting men, Uriah. So he commits adultery 
They didn't have ultrasound and all that back then. You couldn't find out if you were expecting a child for much longer. Then all of a sudden, she comes to him and she says, I am expecting your baby. And he says, well, that's not good. And so he comes up with a scheme. And he says, I'm the king. I can make things go away. Oh, man, but I'll have to make her husband go away. And that guy's good to me, and he's the best fighter. And, but you know what? My reputation is still important. I'm going to hide this. And so not only does he commit adultery, but he sends her husband out to the front lines of the battle, and he tells his general, pull everybody back, leave Uriah exposed, let him fall in battle. Everybody will think he's a great man. He fell in battle. Nobody will know why I'm doing this. And David thinks for a whole year, I got away with it. But the Bible says in the Old Testament, beware your sins will find you out. And so God sends a little bony-fingered prophet named Nathan. Nathan's not some cool prophet. He's not, anybody, any, that, he's not a guy that anybody was listening to at the time. He didn't have any top 30 you know, uh, hits on the prophecy charts or anything. But he did have a story. And he came and he told David a story about a, a little ewe lamb and that was owned by a poor family. But this rich guy came and stole the one ewe lamb from them and, and sacrificed the ewe lamb to, do, to throw a big party for his friends, leaving this poor family bereft of their family pet. And David says, that man will die. And Nathan says, you're that man. That little ewe lamb was that pretty girl you brought into your house. And she belonged to Uriah, and you had him killed. You're that man. Do you remember that year later, David just broke. And he was destroyed by his sin, and he was overcome with guilt. And, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he wrote Psalm 51. Do you remember this? And look what he says. Remember I told you that in the Old Testament, it was we've got to remodel, we've got to renovate before we get things right. And in Psalm 51.10, David wrote, Create in me a clean what? And renew a steadfast what? Spirit. See, heart and spirit is Old Testament. Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renovate me. I, I, I don't even have any market value left. God, you got to come do this work. And, and you know what we're going to learn? This promise of God that we're studying. God says, I don't do renovations. I replace. I'm not going to take your worthless thing and just shine it up. I'm going to take it out and give it a transplant. And I'm going to give you a heart and a spirit that, that's worth having. And so there was this lingering fear that in, in the Old Testament times that what they had by grace could be taken away from them through their disobedience. And so David is thinking, oh my goodness, not only am I about to lose the kingdom, I'm about to lose, I'm about to lose God for what I did. I'm going to send God, I'm going to sin God away from me. So the very next verse in Psalm 51, David says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Why did David pray that? Because David's predecessor was another king that failed, King Saul, and God did remove his Holy Spirit from King Saul. And David looked at that and said, That's the worst thing that can happen to anybody. God, please don't leave me. That was the old covenant under Moses. If you do what I say, we'll have a great relationship. There's a new covenant. In fact, I didn't tell you this, but this is Ezekiel's version, the verses we're reading, of the new covenant, where he's going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. That new covenant that he made to the house of Israel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah is repeated in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. 
And that new covenant, that new agreement, that new relationship that God promised to the children of Israel, he also promises to the church. In fact, it's what makes the church. It's the agreement we have with God. It's a better covenant established on better promises. Hebrews 8, 6. And now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. These promises of God that I am preaching to us this month are the better ones. They're the ones that we can count on and we say, Lord, I'm so glad to be part of your family because this is true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament and it's true today. And you know what? This new covenant that we're under, God doesn't take his Holy Spirit away from his people anymore. When you become a Christian, you, you receive the Holy Spirit and, and he lives in you, Jesus says. He'll be with you and in you. And so you can't lose God. That's what eternal life is. It lasts forever. Now as I land the plane of this sermon, I want to give two applications. I want to give God's why. I want to tell you, tell you why God would give you a new heart and a new spirit. And then I want to give us our what. I want to show you the results of having a new heart and a new spirit from God. So the first thing is God's motivation. Why would he do this? Why does he promise me a new heart and a new spirit? Well, the first reason that he promises you a new heart and a new spirit is for his own glory. Are you okay with God being for God more than he is for you? Do you know everything doesn't have to be about us and our own pleasure? Did you know that God says he knows the proud from afar? God says his own glory and his own name is more important than our glory and our names. In Ezekiel 36, verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I don't do this for your sake. Not for you, primarily. I don't do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you profaned among the nations wherever you went. So the first reason you get a new heart and a new spirit is for my own sake, my own glory. You know what the second reason is? It's for the nations to know him. The second reason that he gives Christians a new heart and a new spirit is that so we will take the message of Jesus to those who haven't heard all around the world. God has always had a heart that beat for the nations who didn't know him. Here's the next verse, Ezekiel 26, 33. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord. I'm gonna do all this for you so that the unbelievers will become believers. They'll know me when I'm hallowed in, hallowed in you before their eyes. That's God's why for his own glory and for the nations to know him. And now finally, what's my what from this teaching? What do I get out of it? What's the result of having a new heart and a new spirit? Well, the second verse of our key passage was Ezekiel 36, 27. I'm gonna read verses 27 and 28 to answer this question. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and you will do them. And then you shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I'll be your God. Now, Jesus called Satan a liar and the father of lies, yes? One of his most poisonous lies is this. Everybody look at me. 
one of the most poisonous lies of the devil is things will never change. Whatever's happening in your life, whatever's going wrong, whatever suffering you've been going through, all the hardships, all the trials, all the, all the losing your jobs, all the divorces, all the rebellion of your children, all the addictions that you have, all of that mess, the enemy can build on your emotions and in your darkest hour, whisper into your ear, it's never getting any better. It'll always be like this. The people that are fa have failed you, they're never gonna get any good habits. Things will never change. The promise of God that I preach to you today is the antidote to this lie that things will never change. Here's why. The lie things will never change kills expectation. It traps our hearts forever in the present. It robs our future of hope. But this promise of God, do you understand that if God gives you a new heart and a new spirit, God has promised that you will walk in holiness? I never met a Christian that didn't tell me two things. Wish I gave God more money, wished I obeyed him better. Is that true for you? Wish I could be more generous, I wish I was more obedient. Never met a Christian that wouldn't say, man, those two are weaknesses in my life. I wish they could become strengths. I, I'm on this mission to get our church to understand that when you're walking with God and you're in a right relationship with him and his bride, you'll start obeying him and it won't be hard. You, you won't have just a string of failures and you won't just stumble and trip and fall toward heaven. You'll have some spiritual successes. And the reason I can say that is God has promised it. He said, you're gonna walk in holiness. In verse 27, he said, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. If you've tried that and only been marginally involved in your local church, no wonder you failed. Because this is a collective you, it's plural. It's a y'all thing, it's not a just you. And you can't walk with God and not walk with his people. It's like, look, you can't be my friend and say I don't like your wife, amen? <laughs> Nobody says that because of the wife I have. But if they did, that'd be true. I love you, Jesus, it's your church I don't like. And he goes, you don't like the bride that I'm perfecting? So you walk in holiness together. The second result of having a new heart and a new spirit is you receive God's promises. Now, this promise was a big one. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And God says to his children, hey, look, I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the promised land, and that's where you'll live. And when I give you a new heart and a new spirit, you get to go back and live there. You get to have my promises. That's good because we're studying the promises of God this month. And finally today, the third result of having a new heart and a new spirit is that we'll know the Lord. We'll know him, not about him, we'll know him. You shall be my people and I will be your God. It's a promise. I like those promises. How do we do today? We're off to a good start. Yeah. All right, next week's gonna be great too because the scriptures are true. But listen, there's some next steps to take. Jacob's gonna tell you what to do next. All right, as we're finishing up, I wanted to remind you one last time that we do have some of these in the lobby. Um, so if you haven't got one, go ahead and get one if you want to get the most out of this series. Uh, the first devotional does start today. There's also small group material. 
Um, so look forward to that in your small group this week. If you're not in a small group, if you're a guest and you'd like to still participate with us in this, we do have a small group for you that meets during this service. It's our, in our Connect group. They're going over this material too. So you can catch it next week. You can find out a little bit. If you are new, on the back of your worship guide, there's a uh, kind of a three-step thing. The first step is fill this card out to say hello to us. And then there's also a gift waiting for you in the lobby. They can even tell you a little bit about the Connect group if you want to be in that small group. It's a great place to meet some folks. So I encourage you to do that. Everyone else, if you grab these, go ahead and finish filling them out. Put a prayer request on there. Uh, you can place these on the wooden boxes on your way out. We're going to have the prayer ministry team uh, this morning, so we'd love to pray for you. So if you're on the prayer ministry team, would you come forward? Go ahead and line up the stage. They'll be ready to receive you for prayer. Uh, it is a, a blessing and an honor. I wanted to encourage you. Uh, don't rush off to lunch. Lunch will still be there. In fact, the lines are probably long right now, so you might as well wait a little bit anyways. Come receive some prayer. They would love to pray with you and for you. See what God has for you today. And I love asking this question. Based on the truth that I just heard, uh, what do I want God to do in my life? Do I want God to retain something in me? Do I want to lean into that promise? What, what does God have for me? So I encourage you to do that. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us one final time this morning. Father, we are a grateful people gathered in the name of Jesus, the bride of Christ. We are humbled that we get to do this. We're humbled that you hear us and answer our prayers, and today, by faith, we're asking you uh, for so many things, and God, we know you hear us, you like to give us good gifts, and so we're going to ask. In Jesus' name, we're thankful. Amen. You are dismissed. Come on forward. Let these folks pray for you. They'd love it. Make some lines. Line up.